from McMinnville, Oregon. This is Crisscrossing Science, the podcast that's for the birds. I'm Michael Crosser. Of course, you know Chad Tilburg. And today's title is How the Birds Escaped Jurassic Park. Hey, Chad. Hey, Mike. How's it going? I'm good. We're finally getting to talk about dinosaurs today. You're always like, no, ants. Ants are more interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, this idea popped into my head because my six-year-old is in a major, major dinosaur phase. And I mean, she just loves, loves the dinosaurs. What's her favorite dinosaur? T-Rex, of course. And she does know a lot of the other dinosaurs. She just likes something about T-Rex. So then the other morning at breakfast, she was eating her toast. And in her cherubic way that she has, she asked me why it was that the birds didn't die with all the rest of the dinosaurs, which I thought was a pretty astute question because one, she understands that birds are dinosaurs. And two, she understands that there's something interesting and weird going on there. Well, I mean, that's that's something that a lot of our listeners may not even know, right? Isn't that a more recent discovery that maybe some of the dinosaurs even had feathers? Yeah, I think all these things are sort of like discovered and known about in the scientific circles for a while first before they kind of gain traction kind of in the popular imagination. And so I, I think it's one of those things that was relatively new when you and I were going through school. And I think it appears to have kind of permeated the rest of the culture now that I think most kids today are learning that birds are actually dinosaurs. They're what's left of the dinosaurs. And so that might be a good place for us to start about that relationship between birds and dinosaurs and where they fit into that bigger picture. Let's do it. I don't know. Maybe I'll pose this as a question to you. Do you know who the closest living relative of birds is? Well, let's see. Are they warm-blooded? Birds? Yeah. Yes, they are. Well, let's see. So we know that birds are evil monsters from the sky. True. So what else is evil? Snakes are pretty evil. I feel like you're just being silly. Well, you're at least in the right group of vertebrates, which is the reptiles. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so it's true that birds are reptiles. They're nested within the reptiles. But actually, snakes and lizards are a whole different wing of the reptiles. Ah. Uh-huh. <laughs> See what I did there? <laughs> and if you go in this other direction that includes the birds, the other big group that you've heard of that is also on that part of the family tree are the crocodilians. So crocodiles, alligators, caiman, that sort of thing. So the closest living relative to the birds are the crocs. But the thing that led to the birds and diverged from the thing that led to the modern crocodiles probably 240 to 250 million years ago. So I don't mean to say that they're, you know, like really close cousins or anything. But what that should tell you is that if you think about how vastly different the bird body plan is from the crocodile body plan, there's like this 250 million years worth of evolutionary change and a whole lot of really interesting organisms that we only know from the fossil record along that evolutionary pathway. And many of those organisms are extinct, and those are the dinosaurs. Hmm. And it's within the dinosaurs where we find the birds are nested. <laughs> oh, I see what you did there, too. So dinosaurs were how many years ago? So we start to see the divergence between the crocodile lineage and the dinosaur lineage about 240 or so million years ago. This is in the Triassic period. Ah, so crocodiles are 
not related to dinosaurs. Well, crocodiles are more distantly related to dinosaurs than birds are. Well, crocodiles are equally related to the dinosaurs as they are to the birds. Does that make uh-huh. sense? It's it's sort of like if you imagine two people who are siblings, they're both equally related to their cousin. Right. Okay. And so in this analogy, dinosaurs and birds would be sort of like the siblings and crocodiles would be the cousin. Got it. Okay. And so anyway, once you start getting into the dinosaurs, I guess I sh- the first thing I should say is that sometimes you'll hear it said that birds are related to the dinosaurs or they're descended from the dinosaurs, but that, that's not really quite accurate. It's more accurate to say that birds are dinosaurs. Okay. It would sort of be like the same as saying that butterflies are related to insects. Well, no, butterflies are insects or humans are related to mammals. No, we are mammals. It's that same level of being actually part of the group rather than just being sort of related to it. And we first start seeing evidence of what gave rise to like the proto birds about 150 million years ago which is, have you ever heard of this fossil called Archaeopteryx? Is it related to the Velociraptor? It it actually is related to the the dinosaurs like Velociraptors and T-Rex and all those are actually in this part of the dinosaur family tree. And so they're all on two legs and they have sort of two hands free and... Make a note that we're both. It's too bad we're only an audio podcast because the listeners can't see us both flapping our arms around trying to mimic what a T Rex looks like. <laughs> All right, go ahead. Yeah. Um, and so it was about that time when feathers started showing up in some fossilized remains of some of these groups. And with in- increasing discovery of different fossils, more and more of this particular group of fossils have indications that they had feathers, at least over certain parts of their bodies. And and at least perhaps little tiny pin feathers, like little tiny filamentous things. Hmm. And that might sound really weird. Like how would a feather start sprouting from a reptile? I thought reptiles were supposed to be scaly. and, And it turns out that feathers are basically highly modified scales. Hmm. They're made of exactly the same keratinous material. And so a feather is just like a greatly expanded and flattened scale. That's the evolutionary origin of them. And so so we got the, the origin of these groups that have feathers. And we're going to talk about a major mass extinction here, the one between the Cretaceous and the Paleogene, the modern era, that is the extinction that wiped out all the dinosaurs about 66 million years ago. Mm-hmm. But there's another relevant extinction event that happened about 200 million years ago called the Triassic extinction. Okay. And so that had this big effect of kind of resetting the planet and it wiped out a lot of existing lineages and allowed a bunch of new dinosaur lineages to flourish. And by about 50 million years after that Triassic extinction is when we first start seeing one of those that is leading towards feathered things. And that group is the theropods. Wait, so can we can we back up then? Yeah. So what led to that mass extinction? So there's some argument that it could have been a gradual process. And then there's also the suggestion that something triggered a whole bunch of volcanism that changed the climate pretty rapidly. So, Okay, so the animals that could not survive with the smoke and the ash and changes to the climate in general 
died off, leaving big holes in the population. Whereas these other ones that could survive, they were able to live long and prosper, and then they were able to fill in all these evolutionary gaps. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so this group of dinosaurs, the theropods, are they're warm-blooded. There's some suggestion that other dinosaurs might have also been warm-blooded, but I think the jury's kind of still out on that. But it, there's pretty good evidence that these dinosaurs, these bipedal dinosaurs were warm-blooded. So this would have included things as you suggest, like the Velociraptors and T-Rex and those kinds of carnivorous dinosaurs. Wait, they were warm-blooded? Yeah, they were warm-blooded. So the more sciencey term for that is endothermic, meaning that their body temperature is maintained at a higher, warmer level than what the ambient outside conditions are because the cell metabolism kicks off some surplus heat as a kind of a waste byproduct of cellular metabolism. And so these things mm. keep their body temperatures up through their cellular metabolism, just like you and I do as mm. mammals. So birds do that. And so do all of these dinosaurs. They've been doing it for a couple hundred million years, at least. So what that means, and turns out to be relevant to our story here, is that they maintain a more constant and warmer body temperature relative to their surroundings. But it also means that it requires quite a bit of energy to fuel an endothermic kind of lifestyle, because things that are not endothermic and rely on the external environment to regulate their body's temperature, they're not burning extra calories just for the extra heat that it creates. So perhaps snakes don't have to eat as often because they're not burning as much energy. That's right. And so what we end up with then is this very large, diverse group of dinosaurs, some of which became enormous that had really expensive energy budgets, not just to move around, but to maintain their body temperature. Hmm. And that that's going to become important in probably a part of the story of who went extinct and who didn't go extinct at this extinction event. So if we zoom in a little bit more now to within the theropods, there's a group within them called the Manoraptorans. And so those are the birds and the bird allies. And here we're starting to see not just do they have feathers, but those feathers are starting to get more elaborated and the fossils, rather than maybe having like some pin feathers around the neck and on the back or something, these are starting to have larger, broader feathers on the arms, and it's within the Manoraptorans where we start to see the origin of flight in the feathered dinosaurs. What do you mean feathered? There were other kinds of flying reptiles around during this period called the pterodons. So like pterodactyls and things like that. And those are a completely separate group. Those are actually not technically dinosaurs. So they're reptiles, but they're their own thing. And so all of the pterodactyls did die out. So birds are not related to pterodactyls. No more so than they would be related to a snake, for example. Okay. Right. They're all reptiles, but it's a completely separate, different group. And so we're starting, but we're starting to get these feathery running around on two legs, feathers on the arms, still claws, still a mouth with a bunch of teeth in it, animals. And an interesting thing about the Manoraptorans within this overall group of dinosaurs is while a lot of those dinosaurs evolved larger and larger body sizes within the Manoraptorans, they were kind of evolving towards a smaller and smaller body size. Hmm. And that's kind of interesting. One reason is it might have allowed them to exploit different kinds of competitive niches 
relative to some of those larger ones. But for whatever reason, they were kind of heading in a, in a slightly smaller direction. And that's also important because if you're heading towards an ever smaller size, suddenly those feathers actually start to give you a little bit of a lift, right? Your body is no longer as heavy. And so this is where we actually start to see flight start to evolve. And so there are a few interesting ideas about the origin of flight. One is that it originally evolved in dinosaurs that were running. And as they were running, they would flap their wings and it would give them sort of a little bit of a lift so that they could either kind of skip along a little bit faster or maybe you've probably seen or maybe even experienced like you scare some birds and they sort of like run a bit and then sort of flap, 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 flap and get away from you. Yeah. So probably something like that. So that's one hypothesis about the origin of powered flight. Another hypothesis is that these were dinosaurs that climbed up into trees and then jumped out of the tree and opened up their arms and it helped them glide. And that gliding became sort of flapping and increasingly powered flight. Or perhaps they were jumping out of trees down onto prey. And so an increasing ability to sort of manipulate your fall, either to slow it or to change your trajectory as they pounced and swooped down from above. I don't really know which of those necessarily is more accurate, but so that that's another piece of the setup here. And then two more pieces. One of them is the bird's brain. The Manoraptorans, their brains were getting a little bit bigger than other theropods, but they were still structured basically in the same way in that the forebrain, the cerebrum, the part of the brain like in us, that's really super expanded. And it's where the higher order cognition and problem solving and decision making and sensory integration and all that kind of stuff happens in most reptiles is relatively small, but in birds, it's very big. Really? The misnomer of bird brain is somewhat unfortunate because birds are actually pretty smart. And so it was, if you look back at the fossils like Archaeopteryx, they still had a very much dinosaur looking brain where the cerebrum was still pretty small. But we have this lineage that is evolving smaller and smaller size and better and better flight ability. And what goes along with moving through the environment by flying is a whole bunch of visual stimulus is coming at you really fast. Sure. And so these were probably animals that experienced really strong selection on their brain to start to be able to integrate that information and to make behavioral decisions more rapidly than if they were just walking or running. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, well, well, I was going to make an analogy of how before I could drive, I would ride my bike and think that I was going really fast. And then I trained myself to be able to drive a car going much, much faster. And then like race car drivers can go even faster than what I would ever feel comfortable doing. Mm -hmm. But I guess that's not really what you're talking about since you're talking about different generations of birds that they eventually had to develop that skill. But I can absolutely see your argument that if they're able to process things faster and faster, then they will be able to survive better than things that are still slowpoke. Yeah, yeah. Well, your analogy works in that in each of those three scenarios, the visual stimuli is coming faster and faster and faster at you. And probably race car drivers are probably pretty close to the top end of what people can do as far as processing visual information and responding to it. And so now imagine that being experienced for 
thousands upon thousands of generations and the difference being who leaves descendants and who doesn't, right? There's really persistent, strong selection for brain features that can process that. And so there was a recent paper that inferred the structure of a brain from the inside of the skull, the inner architecture of the skull. So skulls kind of like mold themselves around the brain. And you can tell what the surface of the brain looks like by looking at the skull. Does that make sense? So like the skull basically is like a perfect mold for what the brain shape was that was inside of it. You're saying like the overall shape of it, not like the bumps and ridges and like the soft stuff on the surface of the brain, are you? No, including that. Even the little surface architecture, you can see kind of the impression of that on the surface of the skull. Oh, so you're saying even with humans, if we cut off the top of the skull, the inside would still have some of the bumps and ridges from the brain? Yeah, it wouldn't be like a perfectly smooth thing. You would feel it was bumpy. Interesting. Okay. Not like, you know, super huge bumpy or anything like that, but you sort of like feel the texture of the inside of it. And so that gives you a sense of the different little regions, little bumps and ridges and stuff. And so by doing that kind of scanning technology to a skull of a member of the Manoraptorans who was around not very long before the mass extinction, what these researchers found is that this bird ancestor still had a pretty small brain, especially compared to modern birds. But what it did have is this little ridge kind of along the dorsal or top side called the Volst spelled W-U-L-S-T. Okay. This little ridge is associated with visual processing. And in modern birds, it plays a really important role in processing all of that sensory information from flight. And so even prior to the mass extinction, we were starting to see evidence that brains were evolving in a way that it was starting to be better and better and better at integrating that flight information. So what that probably suggests is that so we've got body sizes getting smaller, feathers becoming more prominent, brains starting to be able to handle all of that stuff. They're probably getting to be better and better flyers. Okay. And then the last piece of this is the beaks. So if you think about things like the Velociraptors or the T-Rex, they're characterized by these massive mouths with a whole bunch of spiky teeth. Right. But if you compare that to any sort of modern bird, it's just a beak. And if you look at some of the Manoraptoran fossils along the way, things like Archaeopteryx, it has all these feathers, but it still has a mouth that looks very much like a little T-Rex mouth or a little Velociraptor mouth. It's got a bunch of teeth in there. It it looks really cool. And so by the very, very late Cretaceous, so we're talking 66 to 100 or so million years ago, some of these Manoraptoran groups were actually starting to develop more of a beak-like mouth. And that was associated with a more flexible dietary breadth Because if you think about like a T-Rex or a Velociraptor, their eating abilities probably looked relatively similar to like, if you think about what a crocodile or an alligator looks like when it's eating, right? I mean, we've all seen video and, you know, they sort of like chomp down on their prey. They kind of hold it there and they might jerk their head to pull it back deeper into their, you know... It's not like they're doing a lot of like fine scale manipulating of a seed or a fruit or something like that. Oh, I see what you mean. The teeth are there basically to hold on to the meat 
while they rip it away from the carcass or whatever, but they're not like chewing it or, or doing any fine manipulation. They're just taking huge chunks and swallowing them whole. Right. Got it. Okay. But then by the time we get to the late Cretaceous, when the sort of proto birds are coming onto the scene, those mouth parts have been becoming increasingly beak-like and probably the adaptive benefit of a beak, especially for these increasingly small things is it allows them to do more fine manipulations of different kinds of food. And like, I don't know if you've ever watched birds at a bird feeder or something, but it's really pretty cool and watch them eat the sunflower seeds, right? They'll reach their beak in and they'll grab it and they'll kind of use their tongue and they'll be able to turn the seed around inside their mouth and they'll kind of like crack it just so, and they'll use their tongue to move it around a little bit more and they'll crack it again just so. Then they'll spit the seed out and they'll eat the seed. Yeah, right. A T-Rex could not do anything so fine-tuned. And so it's the beak that allows these animals to like finely manipulate different kinds of food items. And so that probably had the effect of opening up a really broader diversity in the kinds of things that they could eat. All right. Yeah. So what I've been trying to do here is kind of set the stage of all of these different features of the proto-birds that were around by 70 or so million years ago, right? So they had relatively smaller body size. They're probably flying around, maybe not that great, but their brain was starting to catch up. They had beaks, so they had a pretty flexible diet and they're warm-blooded. So they could, they could be active in the cold more. And so then, then comes... All right, so we've already teased. I mean, people already know that an asteroid is, is about to come. We're not that part of the story yet, right? So all this has been happening, all these changes to the dinosaurs, long before the actual event of the, the asteroid hitting, they've all been sort of branching off and going different directions anyway, right? We already have a bunch of what we normally think of as dinosaurs as being really big and, and nasty creatures. Right. But at the same time, we already have branching off these smaller creatures that have all these changes that you're kind of running through, right? Right. And I, I should also mention at this point that I've been talking about all of these adaptations and we're going to see how they probably add up to why the birds made it through and so many other things did not. But ah. of course, we should also mention that this wasn't happening in anticipation of an asteroid impact. Right. Like there's no planning involved here. This is how this particular group of animals just happened to have a suite of characteristics that allowed them to squeak through yeah. relative to so many others that didn't. And so one day, 66 million years ago, on a Tuesday, <laughs> there was a massive impact of an asteroid near what is now the Yucatan Peninsula. And well, we were talking about this a little bit ago, and you were talking about how the composition of the asteroid, you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So we were talking before we started recording that this was a very large asteroid that impacted the Earth, and it was also very metallic. And, and actually, those two things are what made it, when it had the impact, much, much harder, right? Because the Earth is bombarded constantly by all sorts of meteors and asteroids and all sorts of different things, right? But the majority of these things that hit the Earth are made of, some are made of rocks, some, some have some ice in them, some have other things that when they start going through the atmosphere, they heat up and they just kind of break apart. But if you have something that is metallic, then the metal will just kind of stay together and we'll be able to make it all the way down to the surface of the earth. And so this being metallic was important. And the fact that it was so big, it was like several kilometers across of mostly metal 
that meant that when it hit, it really, it was all there and it would really hit hard. Uh-huh. Now, what's interesting is that this particular asteroid had a lot of iridium in it. Iridium is a, a very heavy metal. It tends not to react with very many things. It, it tends to stay pretty pure in itself. But it's also very rare in the Earth's crust. Mm-hmm. And yet, what's interesting about this is that there's a thin layer across the entire globe of iridium from about that time. And so this is really sort of the smoking gun of an asteroid impact, is that it left behind this thin layer of iridium from about 66 million years ago. And you can go all over the world and dig down in the ground, and you can find if you dig down to a certain depth, there's a this layer of this heavy metal that is rare to just find anywhere. And of course, we now also know where the impact actually was, which is down in Mexico, just off the water, the coast of Mexico in the Yucatan Peninsula. Yeah, I feel like that impact crater was discovered, what, in the last 20 years or so? It's a relatively new discovery, right? Yeah, it's fairly new. But so this large impact set off a whole chain of reactions. Do you know anything about that stuff? Yeah, well, I've done some reading from a a number of sources, and it sounds apocalyptic. I mean, uh, it's been compared to like six. 60,000 more times powerful than all the nuclear arms exploding at once. Hmm. So that just even thinking about that is just kind of blows my mind. The impact wave of that wiped everything out almost immediately in a huge several thousand kilometer radius around the impact crater. It would have increased the atmospheric temperature to like broiling hot for a period of time. And so if you were anywhere close to it, you just would have been baked by it. There's evidence that it set off forest fires all over the world. And so the effects of it were pretty catastrophic and immediate for those reasons. But then there, the longer term effects is that it kicked up this huge plume of ash and ejected material. And that formed this sort of hazy layer that just was suspended in the atmosphere for many, many years that greatly diminished the amount of sun that was striking the surface of the planet. And so what plants hadn't been burned up by the forest fires, plant communities really started to struggle along because there was so little sunlight. And so suddenly, if you are a massive dinosaur that's an endotherm, not only do you have a large body to take care of, but you have to maintain a body temperature and your food supply is completely collapsed. So if the uh, apocalypse didn't kill you, then the post-apocalypse probably did. And so all the herbivores are dying. Then, of course, the predators that ate those herbivores, their populations would have collapsed. And as I mentioned, based on the kinds of jaws and teeth they have, they're locked into that heavily carnivorous diet. And then to make matters even worse, the force of the impact probably kicked off an era of volcanism just from the shock of it jiggling some of the tectonic plates sort of released a bunch of volcanic activity. And so the combination of all of that then added to the pollution in the air. So it was it was bad news for a long time. And so that helps explain why so many different things died. And if we think back to the features of the proto-bird, it can also help us understand why they might have made it through, right? So for starters, the fact that they're endotherms means that perhaps they were less affected by the significantly cooler temperatures that resulted from the shading from all that stuff in the atmosphere. None of the putatively cold-blooded dinosaurs survive. Huh, okay. The fact that they had been evolving towards smaller size ends up to be pretty valuable for making it past this because being smaller means you have smaller energy demands. 
The fact that they could fly perhaps helped with them being able to cover a much larger area, searching for potential food items. And remember, they've got beaks that allow them to be much more flexible in their diet. Yeah. And so that allows them a certain amount of dietary flexibility in a time when resources are pretty scarce. And they've got this brain that is just starting to develop towards perhaps a slightly better bigger size and better at flight. And then that seems to really set the stage for a rapid expansion in the cerebrum of these birds that allows them to really deal with the challenges because of the behavioral flexibility that a larger cerebrum allows for. Mm -hmm. It's kind of interesting to ponder whether um, there are two kind of scenarios, like was the cerebrum on its way towards expansion prior to the extinction and only the lineage with that expanding cerebrum survived? Or is it the case that after the impact, there was really strong selection imposed on the cerebrum for behavioral flexibility? And so it was after the impact that the cerebrum really expanded in size rapidly. Was that big cerebrum in place before the impact or was it did it happen after the impact really rapidly? And so... So which came first, the chicken or the brain egg? <laughs> The brain chicken or the brain egg, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I guess I should add that as with a lot of really complex historical evolutionary phenomena, there's probably not one single thing, which is why I've tried to present like a whole bunch of different pieces yeah. that together perhaps help explain this really complicated thing of why birds made it through. Nicely done. Yeah, so I, I guess I can tell my daughter that there were probably a combination of reasons why the birds didn't go extinct. Wait, don't tell her. Make her listen to the podcast, man. We need the hits. You're right. right. <laughs> I'm going to have her and her sister stream it separately. <laughs> nice. And they should be sure to like it and leave a comment so that other people can find our podcast. Right. Well, thanks, Chad. And thanks to your daughter for asking the question. Yeah. This episode was recorded on the beautiful campus of Linfield University. Rodeo Ortega wrote our theme music. If you like this episode or others like it, you should subscribe to the podcast. That way you'll download the latest episode as soon as it becomes available. While there, leave a comment and a rating, and that'll help other people find our podcast. If you have a question that you would like us to address, send us an email at crisscrossingsci at gmail.com. All one word, all lowercase. Or hit us up on Facebook. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.